Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. Dan Keeling on the show today. He is the co-founder and co-owner of Noble Rot Magazine, the Noble Rot Wine Bars and Restaurants, as well as Keeling, Andrew, and Co., and also the retail shop Shrine to the Vine in London. Hello, sir. How are you? Hi, Levy. You were born in London, but you moved out of there when you were three. So I was born in a place called Watford, which is just on the outskirts of London. My wife likes to say that the whole family are from London, except for me. And then we moved out to Buckinghamshire. And I, I go to Buckinghamshire. It doesn't really feel like home. I don't know what it is. I wanted to get out straight away, and I went to Manchester Polytechnic, which became Manchester Metropolitan University. And it was an art course, but I was the only person on my course who didn't have a foundation in art because I was so desperate to get out of where I was and get to the city. And um, Manchester was this kind of uh, holy land, or an unholy land, maybe. When I went to college and I remember going into town and having a bank card for the first time and thinking, well, I can actually spend money on an overdraft and thinking, what am I going to spend it on? And it was records and curry. There was a place called This and That Cafe, which is still like one of my all-time favorite restaurants, which is, you, you'll go there, it's in, it's in a back alley of kind of the Northern Quarter, and you can get a curry and three types of curry and rice for like six quid or seven quid, but it's just the most beautiful home-cooked style. So that was kind of an obsession at that time, was good curry. When you were a kid, your dad used to make a good curry. My dad would cook occasionally, but not very much, but he'd make a big song and dance when he did. And our next door neighbor was, um, he was an Indian guy who could cook. So he kind of showed him how to do it. But my dad got it right sometimes and he got it wrong other times. But there would be a bit of a kind of drama if we dared to say that we didn't like the curry when he, when he cooked it. Your mother cooked, but then like me, sometimes it was also the frozen food circuit as a kid. Oh, absolutely. You know, my mum was a head teacher of a school, so she would cook when she was there, but sometimes I'd come home and, you know, they wouldn't be around. So it was a time of Findus, kind of crispy pancakes and something called lean cuisine, which was kind of boil in the bag. I don't know if you had it in America, but boil in the bag dishes, which I've later found out uh, Michel Gerard, the uh, chef. Uh, he was involved apparently in kind of making some of these lean cuisine recipes because he did uh, cuisine mansur. 
So it was a time of Nouvelle Cuisine and that kind of manifested itself in kind of processed food as well. So there was some not so bad stuff, but, you know, frozen pizzas, they're they're never very good. But uh, you may do in the uh, 80s with processed food. One of the things I I recognized in you was that you liked food. I was like, oh, this guy likes food. It's a way of talking about it. Food is one of those things. I mean, some people maybe don't look forward to their next meal as much as I do or or you do, but I can't imagine that. And I know that when you're in Italy or a real food culture like that, then the whole family is obsessed by mealtimes. And it's about getting the family around the table as a social and cultural thing as much as a gastronomic thing. And maybe that hasn't got so much of a culture for that in Great Britain. But I think a lot of people here are obsessed by food. Um, I mean, there's not that many things to be obsessed by, you know, <laughs> maybe your family, maybe football, maybe sex, maybe alcohol, I don't know. But but food is up there. It's one of the greatest pleasures. I can get quite addicted to certain foods as well. And I think I've go through periods of like obsessing about certain foods and wanting to eat them all the time. And some foods make you feel better than other foods, obviously. When did music start to become a profession for you? So when I moved to Manchester, I started writing for Melody Maker, which was a sister publication of NME. And I was writing about electronic music. And there was a magazine called Jockey Slut, which is a a fanzine about electronic music that got set up around the same time. And I started writing about house and electronic kind of music and techno from Detroit and stuff like that around that time. And it was really to meet the musicians i really wanted to kind of find out more about the music and learn more about it so it was at college that it started to really kind of kick off and a friend my best friend alex he cut the top of his finger off in a factory on a on a um, guillotine and he got a payoff of like two thousand pounds we were amazed and we're thinking right you can move to manchester now we can open a nightclub with two thousand pounds so we started to to get plans together for this kind of conceptual nightclub. And we had people over from Detroit, for like Juan Atkins, Kenny Larkin. And, uh, you know, we would DJ ourselves and there'd be a couple of DJs from Manchester. And some nights would be really popular and others would be really quiet. And I can remember not being able to pay Kenny Larkin's manager and having to kind of say we're really sorry we're just students we don't know what we're doing but we're really into your music so that was a learning curve how did it feel for you to be writing about music because i feel like writing about music is kind of like writing about wine you know it's difficult to really bring it home frank zappa said that quote that you know writing about music is like dancing about architecture which is a quote i often come back to because trying to describe smells and ethereal kind of sensations very very hard and i think that's where a lot of wine writing maybe falls down is about trying to be too prescriptive about that because everyone has got their own different interpretation of smells and colors and all these things but so it's really about trying to write about the feeling that these things give you rather and you know a cultural thing as well and trying to find some insight as well and that comes after you're a bit more experienced that you can join dots together between different parts of wine or wine with music or or that with food and give people some kind of insight about why why these things matter you took a a hobby which was going to clubs and listening to music and you made that a profession where you got a paycheck yeah sure and 
yeah, I've kind of done that again with food and wine and music and uh, not everyone does that. And I really appreciate that. And I feel very fortunate that it's happened for me because there were certainly times before I got a job in record companies or before we started Noble Rot when that might not have happened. But you have to put yourself in the position where it can happen. And then with a bit of good timing and good people around you, it does happen. You often have pursued the kind of business that people say, oh, you're not going to make any money in that. Oh, that's hard. That industry is going to eat you up and spit you out. You've often found yourself doing exactly those things. I met a few A&R guys. And I remember one of them saying, you know, don't do A&R. You'll never get a job firstly. And once you get a job, you'll never have a hit. So that was quite a common thing. And then after I came out of the record companies and I was really didn't want to continue in my music career and I wanted to do something with wine and food, I had some friends saying, well, you know, you've had one good career in music. What's the likelihood of you doing a second one? And it was like the odds are stacked against you. But if I'd listened to those people who I respect their opinions, but you can't listen to people. You have to get on with doing what you want to do. And it happened uh, again and in a different way and again i think it comes back to meeting the right people and the people you work with have to connect with kind of your view on how you want things run back to the a and r days parlophone how did that happen and what happened when you were there so i was a and m records before as a talent scout uh i was there for a year and a half i learned some good stuff there but a and m was not a hip label and they had people like brian adams and it was a good time, but it was getting my feet under the table of a record company for the first time was a huge learning curve. You know, I'd come down from Manchester. My boss, the day I started, he basically pointed to the telephone and said, there's a telephone, pointed to a sack of demos, said, there's a demo. He says, right, find us an artist. I'm going to New York. And he went off to New York later that morning and so I was kind of I remember picking up a, a um, Volkswagen what did I have was it a Golf and it was the first time I'd ever driven alone ever because uh, I had to pass my driving test to get the job and that was the scariest kind of thing I've ever done in my life except for maybe LSD which I had to drive from Fulham to Kilburn which should take about half an hour in traffic it took me three hours I remember my feet uh, like like kind of shaking on the clutch going around high park corner so it's a big learning curve and you know i didn't know a lot of london i didn't know uh, new king's road where a m records was I didn't know that area i didn't know all the different venues you have to go to i didn't know the managers you had to speak to i didn't know there's so many things that you need to know and uh, that year and a half was just trying to find my bearings it, you know, you, it was a very hedonistic industry. Like A&R, uh, record label at that time, is a very hedonistic place to, to be. But as much as, you know, that old kind of cliche about work hard, play hard, it was pretty life and death stuff about getting shit done. And if you didn't do it, you know, you would be out. It wouldn't be like it is today where, you know, there's so much more onus put on, like, good practice in the workplace like those old record companies were lawless kind of weird places run by nutcases and and it taught you to be resilient because if you weren't resilient then you're not gonna get on and make so i mean the flip side to that, is that there was a lot of amazing people in record companies as well but there was a lot there was a few psychos and like you know the psychos rose to the top it's like politics and then polygram who owned a&m at the time were 
what was happening? I think uh, A&M was getting folded and then Polygram got bought by Universal. It was this kind of musical chairs, which is always going on in the music industry. And I was going to be, I was going to be without a job. So there was an opening at Parlophone Records and Parlophone Records at that time was the Rolls Royce of English record labels. It had the Beatles catalogue, it had the Beach Boys, it had Radiohead, OK Computer just come out, which was kind of my target of what I wanted to do in A&R was to sign a band with the credibility and the commercial kind of the, the success of Radiohead. Kylie Minogue just got signed and had Can't Get You Out of My Head. There was Blur. I mean, the, the roster was incredible. And the people working there were really good as well. And had a very good a reputation as, and people always say this, kind of an artist kind of label. But it really did. It was, you know, it didn't put too much pressure on artists. It, it kind of went about things in a way where they could have a long career rather than just trying to ram it down people's throats. So getting the job there, I remember, I mean, I don't believe in God, but I remember praying, thinking, I really want a job at Parlophone. And I got a job at Parlophone, and the MD of the label was a guy called Keith Rosencroft, and Keith's still a very good friend, and he'd signed Radiohead. So I was, I was always a bit in awe of Keith. I mean, I still am, of course, but it, I remember saying to him, Keith, you sign Radiohead. How, how do you go about signing a band like that? And you know, Keith's very relaxed and he was just saying, you know, just just kind of relax and get out there and walk around and, you know, you'll bump into something, uh, which is all very easy to say. And then, you know, a year and a half later, the first band I signed was Coldplay. So that was a great start. And Coldplay, most of them were a year younger than I was. So it wasn't like being a 45-year-old A&R man who was 20 years older than the people he signed. I was their age. So I kind of went on, on the start of that journey with them a lot. And kind of their ascent was steep and global as well. So it was really a, a fun time. But at, at first, you didn't think much of them. When you first heard them, you were like, eh. No, I remember the first demo tape I got was called Ode to Deodorant. It sounded like an average school band. There was nothing remarkable about it. And then I went to see a gig. And at that time, I used to have to go and see five bands a night. And you'd drive around from Camden to, you know, to, to the center of town and where, wherever we needed to go around the country. You know, you'd go to Leeds at the drop of a hat and then drive back. Um, and it was the end of the night and I think I was a bit tired and... There was about 20 people in Cairo Jacks and Chris Martin had a very baggy student jumper on. Guy, the bass player, had like a stonewashed denim jacket, which was, you know, I don't think would have even been cool in 1985. And Chris was handing out curly whirlies down the front of the gig to his mates from UCL. And I remember thinking, God, the Rolling Stones would never do that. That is so uncool. And then trying to kind of get, get out of the venue as quick as possible. A few months later, I was in Manchester again and I went to see a good friend of mine who signed their publishing after this and she had their new demo, which is called Bigger Stronger. And Bigger Stronger was so much better than the first demo that I'd heard. It did sound very derivative. It sounded like Jeff Buckley uh, meets kind of a Pink Floyd middle eight with uh, a touch of Radiohead. So you could see the influences, but... 
it was so well done and that thing of playing something over and over and over again i would you know i'd be playing it 10 times in the car on the way back to manchester then you know i'd play it when i was in bed then I'd get up and i'd play it and i was thinking shit this, this band have really improved i need to get back in there and it was a saturday morning after i heard it on the on the friday and i called the manager and i, and I said you know i love the new demo it'd be great to meet up and talk about you know a plan of what you want to do where are you? And he was at the bottom of my street in Hoxton. So in East London, I lived over in East London 25 years ago. And he was there with the, the bass player. So I kind of got down there sharpish and then had a few beers and then kind of went from there and tried to woo them to, to Parlophone, which I did have an advantage because Parlophone was such an amazing label. And I think any band would have wanted to be on that, that roster at that time. I really I haven't listened to Parachutes for a long time, but... It has a, the power comes from its simplicity. It's like a lot of music, a lot of art. And, you know, they've developed into a very different band now. Uh, but as we know, most artists, the first 10 years is when they make the big kind of key works that are going to stay in the kind of popular canon for the rest of uh, time. Yeah, people say Joshua Tree's a pretty good album from U2, for example. I think it, think it did all right, didn't it? <laughs> <laughs> What do you think separated, say, Coldplay from other bands like Athlete that you also signed? Like some are interesting bands that do okay, and some are mega hit, multi-platinum. Yeah, I think what separates them is hairs on the back of the neck moments. You know, that's every great band. Uh, you know, you listen back to your favorite music and it instantly can transport you somewhere. The hairs lift on the back of your neck and you, you feel the energy and that can be like, you know, the change from a chorus into a middle eight or, you know, those, those kind of moments, I think, in, in songs where you have something unexpected happens that just gives you a, a very kind of a big feeling, whatever the feeling is. Also, I think it's about songwriters have to be able to incorporate more than one emotion into a song. You know, if you think of, you know, Sweet Child of Mine by Guns N' Roses, it has a real sense of longing, but it also has a, a euphoria about it. And I think that Coldplay and Chris Martin were very good at, at doing that. And then beyond that, vocals, you know, the voice. And Chris Martin has a distinctive vocal. It's like listening to Elton John. You, you know straight away it's them. And there's something that draws you in that makes it intimate, no matter if it's like they're playing in a stadium or wherever they're playing. It's, it has an intimacy about it. So it, you've got to get all these things and you've got to write consistently good songs, which Chris never drank. Um, I don't know if he drinks now, but at the time he would always be away when the rest of the band would be in the pub. He'd be writing songs and he was obsessed by music and getting better and his obsession is what really drove that band and i think you if you don't have the obsession you're never going to be that big it has to be everything in sometimes going all in works out great and sometimes things fall apart anyway so it was going from mega success to you know back to square one quite quickly that's after this message Sustainability has never been more important, and DM is at the forefront of environmental responsibility. Having set a new standard in the world of closures, DM not only excels in the quality of its technological cork closures, but also demonstrates an incredible commitment to caring for the environment. 
DiEM has taken steps to significantly reduce its carbon footprint, embracing green electricity and renewable energy in its factories. By 2025, they aim to reduce their direct emissions from energy and processing by 55%. Their sustainable closure solution, Origine by DM combines natural cork with a binding agent composed of 100% bio-based materials and a beeswax emulsion, a successful testament to DM's commitment to eco-friendly practices. DM has pioneered a responsible and long-term vision for cork forests, playing a crucial role in sequestering hundreds of thousands of tons of CO2 each year. Planting thousands of new cork trees DM actively contributes to sustaining our planet's natural resources, and that is something we all benefit from every day. DM doesn't just offer technically advanced cork closures, they also lead in environmental responsibility. Learn more about DM's commitment at dm-closures.com forward slash I-D-T-T. That's D-I-A-M dash closures with an S dot com forward slash i d t t for more information that became in a way your calling card when you were handpicked to become managing director at island records yeah yeah i'd been uh, headhunted for want of a better word by by lucian grange who's now chairman of universal worldwide and i didn't really want to leave emi parlophone because i had such a great roster but they were being bought by Guy Hands and the ship was going to start hitting the fan there. And Lucian made me an offer that I couldn't refuse, as they say in the movies. There was a kind of a shift there because U2, which was a huge band for Ireland Records and it actually owned a part of Ireland Records at one point, was leaving. And they were going to go to Mercury Records, which was another part of the Universal Music Group. And you were coming in and you were kind of tasked with finding the next U2 in short order. Yeah, and trying to find a hit straight away is a high-pressure job. And, you know, you get paid money. You get paid a good amount of money. But A&R, when you're having success, you're a genius. And when you've got no success, you're, you're an idiot. So it's a, it's a good life lesson, A&R. And leaving behind my, my artist I had at EMI, which was, you know, Coldplay, Athlete, it had a number one. And just as I left, I, I signed Lily Allen with a friend of mine who bought her in, Jamie Nelson. And that was another hit. It, it, your life is so much easier when you've got hits as an A&R person. You can pretty much do no wrong. So it was going from mega success to, you know, back to square one quite quickly. And then after a couple of years, the, the financial crisis hit. And when you're a big company and the financial crisis hits, you, you streamline and, you know, who can you get rid of? And I was on a lot of money and I'd signed Bombay Bicycle Club, which were a good band, but certainly not like commercially, you know, big. Um, so it was time to leave, but I had two years left on my deal. So they paid me off. And you had met your wife at Island Records. Yeah. So my first day at Island Records, I put my good clothes on. I don't know why, but uh, the first person I met, uh, other than the guy that was showing me round, who was actually the, the MD at the time, but who was going to become president, took me into the marketing department and Naomi was there. So, yeah, there you go. I, I obviously knew something because, the, the, you know, I had my smart white trousers on. And you used to take her around in a black Aston Martin and your dad had used to have been an Aston Martin mechanic. You know, I had the disposable income and I was 30, 
bought a Porsche, bought an Aston Martin. People thought I was a right wanker. You know, of course you would at 30 years old, but I got that out of my system. But buying the sports car thing, I guess deep down probably was about my father's love for cars. And I, I like cars a lot, but he was obsessed by cars. So that was really his thing. And I'd grown up around Aston Martins as well. So primary school, he might come and pick me up in a DB5 Vantage convertible that he's doing up for somebody else. You know, we weren't a rich family, but he would be doing up cars for, for rich families. Uh, you know, the smell of the seats, the, you know, we'd go to concourse competitions. So he would do them up and you'd enter into a competition and they'd be judged these cars about what's the best car. If you have the old Aston Martins, they can be millions now, uh, you know, DB4 GT or something like that. And it was four million pounds. So it's stupid money. It's that Romany Conti of cars. So it was, I spent a lot of my time at racetracks and these car events, and they were all Aston Martin ones. So it was very much, I've got an Aston Martin finally, I've kind of achieved something, Dad. And, you know, it was it was nice, but I only had it for a year and a half because I moved house and, you know, I don't think driving those cars in London is particularly good look a lot of the time. You know, they make you a target. And I got rid of it, I sold it, and I bought a Citroen DS21 uh, that goes up on hydraulics. And the Aston went 0 to 60 in something like six seconds. And the Citroen did the same thing in about 21 seconds. And I vividly remember having just bought it, being on Shepherd's Bush Roundabout, and the lights turned from red to green, and the bus did me off the lights. And it was just, I thought, what have I done? <laughs> You're at Island Records from 2006 to 2009. And then you found the Noble Rot magazine late 12 into 2013. And what's happening in between that period of time? You got a little cash in your pocket. So left Ireland, then did a label called Hideout. We signed a couple of acts that didn't happen. At the time, I was also wanting to find out more about wine and enrolled at WSET, was going to Roberson Wine still quite a lot, which was next door to Ireland Records, where I met Mark, my business partner. And I taught myself how to cook a bit more or, you know, and just trying to work out what to do next. I mean, it's coming up to being late 30s. So, you know, you've got another, you've got another roll of the dice or, or maybe two because people have like different careers. But I knew I didn't want to stay in major record labels. So I started thinking, you know, could I be a chef? And I didn't want to be a chef because I was probably too old for that. And it's a very demanding job. And I, I love cooking. I love cooking at home, but that's a very different thing. So I didn't want to start a restaurant and I was, you know, more obsessed by wine. So I didn't want to become a sommelier. Again, it's a very demanding job. So I, I kind of bought some time when Mark and I started the magazine and I, I thought that the best strategy might be just to, well, to start writing again because when you write, you meet people and doors open that you never knew were even there and one thing leads to another and opportunities so so really when we started drinking together and then realized quite early on that we've got a very similar taste in wine and a very dark sense of humor that's quite similar so we we kind of hatched this plan after these tastings that mark would be doing at robeson's and the, the early seeds of noble rock were, were kind of there i think i did some tastings as well for friends at my house and I would have them round and, you know, we, we later did a pop-up, a Noble Rock pop-up after the magazine had started. But it was a very um, touch-and-go time. 
changing career is a, is a, a leap of faith. It's a tough thing. And when you get your first paycheck on the other side in another completely different area, it means a lot more, even if it's a lot less money. You know, you, you start some things and you, you might not make money from them. You know, a lot of things start like that, but you do them because you really want to do them and they have meaning for you. And if you can then monetize them, I mean, a key part of it, obviously, is to say that you have to think that there, you can monetize something in the future, but it might not be that that's the time you're monetizing it. And I think with Noble Rot, it was always about building something that was inclusive, that people wanted to be part of, that was doing something different to what was around. And having the opportunity to spend, you know, the first couple of years trying to find our feet, trying to get a community of writers and illustrators together, it was the foundations of to what was to come later. Because once we got that small audience at the start, then we, we looked for investment so we could do a restaurant. And then once we did the first restaurant, it kind of built from there. So you met Mark Andrew, a man with two first names. I always like to mention when someone has two first names. I, first of all, I met him on the on the uh, the shop, the Robeson shop, and I'd go in there on a Tuesday afternoon, and he'd be working in there on the counter, and we'd talk about Freddie Mounier or you know Nuit Saint Georges Claude Maréchal, for example, or we would talk about some of the kind of natural wines which were just kind of they were starting to stock. So it was a very diverse range, and Mark is very passionate. You know, we had an equal thirst, if you like for wanting to discover wine and we have a very similar sense of humor and reference points you know with, with football and music and other things so it, it felt very natural to start hanging out and he would put on these amazing tastings so it'd be coach de vertical or it would be a chave hermitage vertical or reyas and this was a time when these wines although they were expensive they were still doable. You know, you could still save up and between three of you buy a bottle of Kosh and, you know, have a magical experience. And we always talk about maybe one of the most seminal tastings he did was Grange de Pair. Definitely seminal for me because it was 2010 and I was into wine, but I just remember tasting all these different vintages. And what I loved was some were just, you know, mind-blowingly good and some were just a bit dilute and they weren't homogenized, you know, they were, they were just, they were what they were. And I think that that's kind of what we love about wine and the kind of wines that we want to work with. So we started drinking together after work. We'd go to a pub in Notting Hill called the Mall Tavern. We would take a bottle of Pignan 03 or they, you know, we would take a Robino wine or something like that. And, and we, were, we were exploring wine more together. I'm not sure who mentioned it first, but we soon found out that we'd both read the Kermit's um, book adventures on the wine route and it'd been the kind of seminal book i mean what i loved about it is i like kermit's sense of humor he's got a real charisma he's not talking about it in a just an academic way he's talking about it from a lifestyle point of view and also a gastronomic point of view as well and it really took you to to the places and these wines which are very much themselves they're not trying to be other things they weren't chasing after Parker points. They were kind of the antithesis of the kind of corporate side or the commercial side of wine. And that, to me, was more like alternative record labels like Rough Trade and Music rather than, you know, Polydor doing like S Club 7 or whatever. It's, there's so many similarities. And that appealed to Mark too. Once again, you decided to have a partner, which I think is a choice. It's obviously worked out very well for you, but I think it's a choice. 
I think we do very different things and we are we have very different approaches to different things, but they can be complementary. And I think if I was trying to do what we do now on my own, I wouldn't be able to do it. And I think the same for him. It really does come down to a vibe, doesn't it? And you sit across from someone and you think, can I spend time with this person? It's like with your wife or your, you know, you can't pick the rest of your family, of course, but it's about wanting to spend time and ease and your personality is clicking together. My personality is very different to him. his. There's things that I do that I know that he probably looks at me and thinks, you know, you, you, maybe you shouldn't be doing that. But this is kind of certainly stuff that I learned in music. I remember Osman Eralp, who was the MD of A&M Records, you know, he taught me a lot. And one of the things that he taught me about A&R was you need to know about every band in the country that's unsigned. Ring the manager if he or she says it's going to send you a demo tape and it doesn't come two days later, call them again. If it doesn't come two days later, call them, call them, call them. So tenacity, whereas I think not everybody would do that. And I think that, you know, my tenacity sometimes is something that Mark wouldn't naturally do. So having the kind of two different but complementary mentalities, because there's things that Mark would do that, that I wouldn't do. You become from different upbringings and different places and with different people. But the it's difficult to quantify what that chemistry is. And I think it's about, it's the same with bands, isn't it? Some bands stay together, some bands split up. You know, watching the Clash documentary is, I remember one of the things I remember Joe Strummer saying is, whatever you do, you know, that chemistry, whatever it is, is important. It's important to maintain it because as soon as you change it, and I think they fired their drummer, it's just never the same. So whatever our chemistry is, it works. I mean, we've been together 10 years on the magazine, which, you know, the Beatles were together seven years. I mean, I'm not suggesting that we're anything like the Beatles, but a lot of bands, a lot of partnerships split up and there's there's something there. And I think it, a lot of it comes down to if you can laugh together when you have those hard moments, then that counts for quite a lot. We, you know, when we started out, we would know what each other likes to drink because we like to drink the same thing. So then, you know, that bit is fairly easy. And then having the contacts to find those kind of Ravnos or Grange de Pairs or, you know, that's kind of the easy bit. But what Mark's very good at then is finding them, but then trying to find interesting wines that don't cost a lot of money, which are kind of real value picks on the list. Mark's responsibility really is buying and to put the list together. What he's really good at as well is he's a real people person and he really cares about the people that work for us. You know, he's in every appraisal with staff members. He's often fronting up the training side of what we do as well. Before the restaurants happened, you guys did the magazine. So yeah. 2012 and then first issue was 2013. Or maybe just walk me through what that was like. Yeah, our first issue, we did a thousand copies, hand numbered, cost 500 pounds you know, it was not even really going to have many illustrations in it until we got to sending off to the printers and realized we were being a bit mental and then kind of had to work out how do we get some illustrators? Where do we get them from? It was really this thing of starting before you're ready, which is kind of one of our kind of things that we've, we've done. You know, we started a restaurant before we really knew what we were doing, started a magazine before we really knew what we were doing. But you find people who have more experience than you and you get them as part of your, your team. 
So it was through connections that we kind of pulled stuff together, but it was more like a pamphlet than it was a magazine. And I'm proud of it being more of a fanzine than it is a magazine. Fanzine kind of says something about the kind of aesthetic we wanted to have. Definitely not glossy. And, you know, everything from the the stock, the paper stock, to the kind of illustrations, to the color scheme, everything needed to be refined. And it took a few issues to, to get to a place where I was happy with it. In the first few issues, Mark was doing like some very simple layouts on his computer, which was which was so dated and like, but it, it got us going and it got us to where it needed to be for the first bit, which was really about having a different voice and having a voice that appealed to us rather than, you know, we're fans of Genesis Robinson, we're fans of, you know, Hugh Johnson and Stephen Spurrier and these are people that we look up to, but they were generations above us and you know certainly with Hugh and uh, Stephen Spurrier they came from very upper class backgrounds and if they didn't make a living with what they were doing they would probably be all right we were coming from a different generation but I think that our timing was good because 10 years the last 10 years has been the most exciting time in wine in many ways all the different areas that have come back online from you know the vineyards being abandoned it couldn't have been a better time to do a wine magazine i feel like by issue seven it was kind of the noble rot that it is today that's the one that has the brian eno and yeah yeah issue seven was great i mean eno was a, a, is a hero and he didn't let us down at all meeting him you know that thing about don't meet your heroes well if, if brian eno's your hero then you should meet him because he, he you know he's amazing Again, another surprising thing, the fact that he said he collected smells and he went and got all these little vials and then he, you know, he told us that he'd put together a perfume that he'd given to an artist that he'd worked with and she'd said that she got her husband by wearing it. And he said, he said that you can't wear it in the street because it was too powerful an attractant for the opposite sex. So, you know, he's just an incredibly engaging individual. He's like the kind of art teacher that you never had, like the best art teacher you would have had at school. So that was really good. Being able to join these dots between music people or art people and wine and food and contextualize it in a way that made sense to us and we knew it would, or we hoped would make sense to other people too. You in that issue had done the Dujac piece, which became, I think kind of seminal for you in opening some doors in Burgundy. Jeremy got in touch. Jeremy says from Dujac and he'd got the magazine and we'd exchanged some emails and then he very generously said, do you want to come to Dujac? And the answer, of course, is yes. He'd got a couple of pigs and every year he kills one of his pigs and, you know, makes uh, charcuterie and, you know, pork chops and whatever else. So I went for that and uh, it was an amazing trip and Jeremy's very generous and that domain has got such a great history, so, such soulful wines. And um, it was a, an, an experience that I'll never forget. And through Jeremy, we met Jean-Marc Rouleau, who we later went on to start working with importing his wines into the UK. So it was a very important trip. That's a direct correlation between how the writing and the magazine ended up being an import business as well. Yeah. And I think if you're making wine and you see people talking about it in a way that kind of connects with how you feel about it, then you're going to feel good about that. Whereas other magazines might not do that. They might do it in a more commercial points driven, trying to 
describe a wine by breaking it down into descriptors kind of way, which is something that we've never done. And so I think that would appeal to them. There's been some people who sold wine who wrote really well about wine. Yeah. Carmen Lynch would be one of them. Terry Thies would be another example. You know, wrote in inspiring ways, reached different kinds of audiences through their kinds of writing, but ultimately they also sold wine. Yeah. And uh, you are this person now. I think originally you were not. You were a guy who had a magazine, mm. right? And so did that feel different when you also started representing the same wines that you were writing about or no? No, no, not really. I mean, with Noble Rock, we're not saying that we're impartial. We're saying that we love these wines. We really love these winemakers. We're not impartial. We can sell you the wine as well. That was part of what I really used to love about Kermit's writing. There's a book he did called Inspiring First, which is the catalogues from the 70s and the 80s. And he'll be writing about Henri Jaillet and he'll say, I've got these, these Eshazo in at the moment. And he'll tell a little story about it. And I've got like two cases and you think, fuck, I really want to buy it. But obviously, this is like 30 or 40 years in the past. You don't have to be impartial. What we would say is we stand by everything that we sell and we would drink it ourselves and i don't think everybody in in wine is like that they're selling it as a commodity of course it is a commodity for us but we're selling it because we love these wines there's nobody in our portfolio who we don't really rate so yeah i think it's kind of probably the kermit lynch model that we followed there what hasn't worked and what does work when you're writing about wine Ultimately, the reader should come away with a takeaway or two or three takeaways about something they didn't know before. You know, I want people to go away and think, oh, you know, uh, I didn't know that about Muscadet. I'll, I'll try that. That's really important. And also to keep, yeah, you can veer off subject a bit, but you've got you've to have a, a story arc and you've got to start off with a, something that's engaging. I like to put a bit of humor in there too, just to kind of, because... People have a short attention span. So the main thing is having takeaways and takeaways are probably insights. And insight comes from processing information, not just kind of regurgitating information that winemakers have told you or chefs have told you, but to then go back to the thing of why should I care? Why should anyone care? What's special about this? And to try and convey that. And I think when you overthink things, when you set out to oh, try and be too funny or overwrite, that's a, a trap that you fall into a lot, especially when you first start writing. Simplicity, simplicity of sentences, um, you know, it just comes from doing it a lot. And you just have to just, like anything, just repeat, 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 screw up. Be prepared to screw up, you know. Sometimes write a piece think nah doesn't work come at it from another angle and not beat yourself up about it either not to think oh i'm a crap writer it just means that this one piece hasn't worked but it means a lot of work and it means being obsessed with doing that work so i mean i used to think that you had to sit at a desk and you know have no distractions and only way that you could write but now i could be on a tube and i'm doing like 20 minutes of, of writing in a crowded tube and I just am able to hone in much more on getting on with work. What about that topic of obsession? It's come up a few times. I feel like it's an attribute you look for. What do you think appeals to you about that? So there's, there has to be, you know, people who tend to do well are pretty much obsessed with what they do. 
writers, uh, you know, novelists, Irvin Welsh talked about, you know, I'm not a very nice person to live with because I'm always up in my room and, you know, my girlfriend or my wife would have people round and they're like, well, why don't you come downstairs instead of being upstairs with your imaginary friends? But that's, that's an obsession, but that's what's made him an amazing writer. You know, going back to Chris Martin, one of the most impressive things about working with him was his obsession. He, you know, we spent a lot of time together the first three albums, but we didn't talk about superficial stuff most of the time. It was just talking about songs, his songs and recording, and it was an obsession. I can see that. How do you think you've developed as a writer? Because you're not just a magazine owner. You're also a writer for this magazine. How do you think you've changed? To develop as a writer, you need to read other writers. You need to look at how they structure things. There's people that, that write for the magazine, like Marina O'Loughlin. You know, she's a, been a good to bounce ideas off. You know, if I've written something, I can get feedback as a writer from someone who I really respect as a writer. And her restaurant criticism and A.A. Gill and there was Giles Coran and all English kind of restaurant reviewers but they all were quite funny when they're on form they write in a funny entertaining way because their role is not just to give a, an objective kind of criticism of a restaurant it's to be entertaining to readers and so I've always kind of tried to take some of that and do that in wine which I didn't think was was done very much so I feel that I'm improving as a writer and you know when you start out you think, oh, I've got to do a wine grower's biography and they, they did this and they did that. And I'm less interested in doing that, far less interested in doing that now. I'm more interested in trying to find insights into why things matter and to try and express the feeling of what going somewhere feels like or what drinking something feels like and why anyone else should care about it. You know, I want to make people laugh. A lot of writers don't. But a lot of writers do, and I, and, I, and I feel that that is something I really want to achieve. So coming at something with a little bit of a quirky kind of angle, like you're trying to talk to a friend and you're trying to, you know, make your friend laugh. Sometimes you imagine that. And I think that about restaurants too. I was in Noble Rock the other day and was having lunch with a friend, and I just kind of turned around and had a kind of moment of clarity where there was just a lot of laughter and it was, it was like a Monday lunchtime or something. And it was just people enjoying themselves. And it, it's a great restaurant is, is a bubble that people escape from their lives in. And that's something really positive that it offers the world. And I think that writing and, and restaurants are similar in that way. So, yeah, but laughter, that's, that's the key to it. Have you had any kind of dark nights of the soul or kind of crisis moments where you wondered about the level of irreverence when the world is kind of in turmoil? Is it even still possible to be as glib or as easily funny as it would have been a decade ago? I think you've got to tread carefully in certain circumstances. I, I had a cover for one of the issues during lockdown, uh, the If Not Now When cover, which came out as old father time with a clock round his neck on a chain holding a bottle of Latash. That originally was uh, the Grim Reaper and at a time when obviously people were dying of COVID, that was it would have been inappropriate to put it out. I mean, it's, it's a good cover, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's a fine line to walk. I mean, just before COVID, we had an idea for an article 
and it was with Stephen Harris, our exec chef, and Jack Keenan, who's one of our shareholders who died. He'd been ill, but he was, you know, he's 86, Jack, and he was one of the the youngest spirited older people that I've ever met in my life and a real uh, wine lover with an amazing cellar. He gave us two bottles of Rousseau Chambertin and the article was going to be Stephen cooking with the Chambertin, a cocker van, and then cooking with like a supermarket Pinot Noir and then we'd have a little panel of tasters and we would just see. I mean, it was, you know, it was kind of outlandish, but it was a serious question, which is how much does quality of wine as an ingredient affect the finished result? Obviously, we had that planned and then COVID happened and then it would be completely inappropriate to be cooking a £3,000 bottle of wine into a cocker van. Now, we would love to do it, but, you know, the time has gone. That's being irreverent about wine. So, yes, it's a time of... We kind of seem to lurch from one apocalypse to another at the moment. Uh, But also, you have to be able to have a laugh about life because if as the saying goes if you can't laugh about it then then what else do you have so i don't think it's harder to be irreverent or glib you just got to be appropriate to whatever the circumstances you know spend a lot of time thinking about covers if you haven't got the right cover then i'd rather delay a copy of the, the issue of the magazine than put one out that's not right and the best covers often come from an idea um a kind of slogan or whatever like we did one uh, make wine not war with trump and kim jong il on the cover which which really connected with people and you know coming up with those kind of phrases and taglines shrine to the vine winos of attitude sex and drugs and pinot noir some of them are better than others but they're all trying to convey this kind of sense of humor and attitude that we're trying to set ourselves apart from other brands with I mean, I think several times you've avoided the trap of not doing it with style. So let me give you some examples. I think a lot of people, when faced with a magazine that didn't make any money, would say, well, we need to release this magazine more often and we need to take a lot more advertising. And you did neither. Yeah. Okay, so most people would have done that. And then most people, after they started their successful restaurant, they would get an offer from a hotel group or a developer to go open up in some uh, glass box for their second restaurant, some glass box with no soul, yeah, in an area of industrial development with no character. And you've decided not to do that either. Most people do do that. Or most people would say, well, yeah, we have all the style points already, but what we really need is to import a wine that is made at such quantity that we can really make some money. Mm. We can talk about all the great artisans, but actually what we really do that floats the bottom line is we bring in pallets and containers of this other wine that sells to supermarkets. And I feel like all three of these things you've declined to do. It's more about what you've said no to than what you've said yes to. Does this make sense? Yeah, totally. And that, in a nutshell, is it. It's what you say no to. It's a business with, you know, 120 people at Noble Rock, but it's also a, a passion. And as soon as we start making compromises on that, then I think it's very easy to, to lose your way. You know, one compromise leads to another. The art's not quite so good. You know, maybe that'll happen one day. Like everything has a shelf life, but we're still as curious and driven as we were at the start to push Noble Rot on and to to find out about new wine areas, to find out what is Valet wine like, to go to different places and to 
to give people a good experience as a hospitality business. You guys keep yourselves so busy, it's almost sort of uncanny how you've decided to open restaurants during a pandemic or go on a book tour during the pandemic. And you're like the Energizer Bunny. You just want to keep moving. I mean, you've got to be out there. I mean, it's what, what we love as well. I mean, we love restaurants. We love wine. We love talking to people about both those things. Love visiting winemakers. Love creating stuff as well. So to be have the opportunity to continue doing that, it, you know, if you if you rest on your laurels, then you need momentum of a project. I've seen that in, in music and most successful artists. They don't take too much time off because it's about keeping your momentum. And maybe there's a, there's something deep in your psyche that this isn't a given that you're always going to have an audience, that your restaurants are always going to be busy, that, you know, you're going to come up with new ideas that connect with people. But you you have to just keep peddling and, you know, keep doing what you're doing for the right reasons. And the right reasons are that it makes you happy what you do and you can make a living. I've heard you reference that a few times where you've said, well, we have the success now, but we don't know. And I just wonder, is that a real thought that you have? Like, do you actually... I would never take anything for granted because, and maybe because I've changed career and I've gone from being very successful in something to not so successful and then changed out of it. I, you know, you cannot take anything for granted at all. I mean, it's, it's life, isn't it? And we are, we're here, but for the grace of God, being complacent, your business can easily fall apart, and especially in the current climate. I mean, I think we're at a bit of a seismic change in some ways about in restaurants, you know. I've been to a few kind of high-end restaurants recently, especially, you know, those with a couple of Michelin stars or three stars or whatever, with a lot of chefs and, you know, interest rates are high. People are, are going out maybe a little bit less. I mean, maybe I'm talking about outside London than I am inside London and New York as we will definitely have their own little ecosystems but i think we're a bit of a bit of a crossroads at the moment it's a very challenging time so to do what you're doing to the best of your ability as a business owner this is what you need to do because there's going to be a lot of casualties if the british government hadn't given out covid loans then we wouldn't be here today you know most likely most restaurants wouldn't be one choice you've made that's also distinctive is that you and Mark are the face of the restaurant group. And in that era of the chef-driven restaurant, this is unusual because neither of you are a chef. And no. it's kind of in the Danny Meyer model, who is also not a chef, but it's increasingly uncommon that the wine guy or front of the house would be the people doing the interviews, people receiving the awards, people really associated as the face of the restaurant. I, I think you're right. I think. Over the last however many years, it was driven by chefs, and I I enjoy being a restaurateur. So does Mark, but it's yeah, it's unusual. But I think one of the things that we have that maybe other restaurants don't have is a USP, which is very clear. Which is we are here to celebrate wine culture, and we will find amazing value wines for as little money as we can, and we'll find old stocks of you know Rhones or Bordeaux or whatever at good value. So uh, our ambition, we always wanted to be the wine people in London. That if you came from America to London, you would know about Noble Rot and you would make a beeline for it, and that's still our ambition. So yeah, it's Noble Rot's a bit different like that, but I. That comes from being a magazine first. I mean, I don't know any other restaurant group that came from a magazine. It's just 
an obscure way to come into the industry. Do you feel that people want to work with you as employees because there is a clear mission statement? Undoubtedly, yeah. I think having a clear mission statement, you can come and work at Noble Rot and you will learn about wine, you'll be exposed to great wine, you'll meet other people who are just as into it as you are. And I think that that gives us a great advantage over some other restaurants. But yeah, you need a mission statement. You also need to know what you're not, what the enemy is. And for us, kind of commercial, bland wine is a kind of enemy. A.A. Gill was somebody that you've alluded to as being an influence in terms of writing. You liked his reviews and you liked his writing style and it kind of influenced how you went in your own writing. And then he reviewed your first restaurant before he died. What was that like being reviewed by him? That was the most nerve-wracking of all the reviews. And I remember he wrote for the Sunday Times. So it got to Saturday night and he'd been in a few weeks before and it got to like 11... 57 and it was just about to flip from saturday times to the sunday times and i kept refreshing the page refreshing the page refreshing the page and then it was another restaurant and then the next week i did the same thing and the next week and i think on the fourth week after there was a bit of a delay it was us i think it was four stars out of five so obviously i looked at the stars first of all and i thought fuck at least he hasn't given us a mauling that's that's quite good he was the kind of reviewer that if he didn't like something, he could write you a one out of five and just give you a mauling. And it was just before the Brexit vote, and he used our bread board as a kind of uh, a metaphor for why Britain should stay in the European Union. And I don't think, I don't think, I don't think I or Mark, my business partner, or anyone else really that we worked with thought that we would be voted out of the European Union. So it was a very, just before a very dark time. And we woke up that morning and it felt like we'd been kicked in the nuts and it was like someone had died. When we come back, it's a Rotter's road trip to Burgundy, a survey of some of the world's wine regions and a look at where different wines fit into the market today. I think during lockdown, what happened with Burgundy prices, no one could have foreseen. And I think it it really has changed things there. Um, you know, the top wines, they were, you know, if they were 500 pounds before lockdown, some of them, as you know, they could be 3,000 pounds for the Grand Cruise. That's after this. It's not enough to make great wine. You also have to reach the consumer that appreciates that wine. And that's where Offset is an incredible asset. Offset is an independent brand design and commerce technology company that connects with wineries on a human level to help them connect with consumers on a human level. Offset is based in wine country and staffed by creative strategists and technologists who are superb at helping create and evolve wine brands through visual identity and package design, developing the look, feel, and tone of your web content as well as building beautiful and effective websites powered by their proprietary e-commerce platform, Offset Commerce. That's why leaders like Frog Sleep, Grace Family Vineyards, and Rain Winery already rely on Offset. Reach out to the brilliant team at Offset at offsetpartners.com. That's O-F-F-S-E-T, partners with an S, dot com. Offset is focused on the wine industry and can embrace the nuanced needs of your wine brand. 
These days you spend five, six trips a year to Burgundy, right? I'd say we go like four or five, yeah. It's been over a decade of, you know, having experiences there and it's changed a lot. I think during lockdown, what happened with Burgundy prices, no one could have foreseen. And I think it it really has changed things there. Um, you know, the top wines, they were, you know, if they were 500 pounds before lockdown, some of them, as you know, they could be 3,000 pounds for the Grand Cru's. But I do think some of those prices are, are leveling off and coming down now. And I think there's a lot of people who had a lot of money in the bank, a lot of spare time, just getting into Burgundy and were prepared to, to spend it. But now they've filled their cellars and I think that they probably want to dispose of some of these wines because they, they might have got it because they were just speculating maybe. So I think we'll, there's a bit of a realignment coming with the, some of the, the top domains. But I think what's key about burgundy and keeping it vital is the new generation that are in the kind of outlier appellations like morange or up in the oak coat and people being able to to set up their own domains and cassiope for example is a very good example of that um a couple uh, hugo and Tallulah, who worked for jean-marc also worked for freddie mounier and have gone to morange a place that previously would just be for bulk wine that would be too cold to ripen a lot of the time and they're making beautiful wines that are accessible so for burgundy to continue in a really meaningful way people who are just getting into wine need to be able to drink the wines and Sylvain Pattaille, for example, another good example. Jean-Marc Vincent. Accessible Burgundy is key because some of these Grand Crus have gone so astronomical that, that only the very rich will be able to, to, to drink them. But I think, um, I think that's a concern for everybody, and I think the growers know it. I mean, it's got to be, if you're making something which is beautiful and, you know, a masterwork in a, in a great year or even you know it doesn't have to be a, a warm year it could be a kind of more classic year like 21 and you've made this really profound wine if your wine's just disappeared into some kind of speculators um cellars and may never get drunk that's kind of a bit depressing isn't it so i think we'll see over the next few years it'll be fascinating to follow what happens with burgundy but i i've got you know, real optimism that it will level out. Maybe some of the kind of prices will come down at the top end and, you know, you've got this new generation coming through that still makes it the best place to visit if you're into wine. I mean, these, nowhere makes wine like Burgundy. It's kind of, at its best, it's kind of unbeatable. The Rotter's Road Trip is a, a section of your book where you talk about different travels, different tasting experiences, different visits to cellars. In the Burgundy context, are there certain ones that have really stood out for you, visits to cellars? People that we started working with when we when we started working with them have stood out. I remember going to see Sebastian Caille, uh, Lamy Caille in, um, in Chassin-Montmarché and tasting with him. Mark and I went there and we came out of this tasting and Sebastian's a very self-effacing, mellow guy who makes incredible wines. And we came out of there and we both looked at each other and just was like, fuck, that's like one of the best tastings we've ever had. You know, the wines had real richness to them and weight, but they were also really precise and linear. So it's a, a magical kind of thing to pull off in white burgundy. That was amazing. You know, tasting with Freddie Mounier and, you know, Freddie's wines are probably 
the burgundies that really got me into burgundy and so going there and tasting with him is always a treat and there's just something about his shambles are just incredible i mean going on there's people like minerais Jubourg who we're starting to work with as an importer tasting their 21s was was fantastic and there's so many good producers you could just go on and on and i think that with the people that are switched on, the switched on winemakers that travel and drink from other regions, not just Burgundy, I think the winemaking is getting better and better. Obviously, we've got the climate getting warmer, so that has its own problems. But yeah, I'm really kind of, I'm always really excited. At one point, you used to kind of describe yourself as an outsider in the wine world. But, you know, when you're the importer of Rouleau and Mounier Giborg, I feel like you're, you kind of made it, right? Yeah, I mean, I think it's more of a mindset. Um, I don't know if your American uh, listeners will know Jose Mourinho. He's a football coach, yeah. And uh, I always used to love how he set himself up as an outsider and the team up. I think it's a good place to be. When I was in music, I didn't necessarily feel like, you know, I was an insider in music and I don't necessarily feel like I'm an insider in wine. It's more of a mindset type thing. I mean, it's, you don't want to just become part of the establishment, even though we probably are established. And yeah, I mean, there's nothing like the vastness of wine to make you feel like you don't know anything about it at all. Like, okay, I was in Valais the other day and we went to this restaurant that's famous for raclette and I got the wine list and it was like 30 pages of wines that I have no idea what like 99% of them are I know I knew Chapaz I knew maybe five or six other names but because there was probably a lot of kind of commercial wine on there as well but it was it was all Swiss wines and Swiss wines as we know they don't get exported so we never see them so no matter how much you think you know about wine you go there or go somewhere else and you realize you just know a bit about wine So, yeah, it's quite easy to reconnect with that feeling of knowing fuck all. I feel like you're often, the audience is not actually like wine dorks. I feel like you're trying to appeal to normal people and having that outsider view. Yeah, we're also outsiders in this world of wine, although we have some great experiences, I think would seem more appealing to normal people who are like, I don't know about the wine world. Yeah, I think that's a good observation. I think there's so many barriers in wine. I think the barriers have become less. I think natural wine, you know, you can argue about the rights and the wrongs about it, but what it has done is it's made wine accessible to a lot more people because they don't need to know necessarily what even a grape is or an appellation. They can just, you know, it's a funky wine with a colourful label. So I think some of the barriers have changed, but uh, I've never really liked... I remember going into Berry Brothers years ago to the wine shop and, you know, I didn't know that Le Menil was called Le Menil. I thought it was Le Mesnil. So you'd say that and you'd kind of get corrected snootily about it. So wine knowledge is easy to hit people over the head with, you know. There's a lot of that still, a lot of making people feel small. And that's not really what we're about. We're about, we want the magazine to be entertaining. We want it to be fun. We want the restaurants to be inclusive. We want to make people feel special. And at the end of the day, I want, we want to make people laugh as well, which is something that's missing from a lot of wine media or food media. So it's about injecting a sense of fun to what we do. And we don't want to be too academic. We want to come from the point of view of being drinkers as well. One of the things I've learned is that you really learn who somebody is when you go on a wine trip with them. 
you really find out who this person is that's with you. And one of the early trips you took with Mark was to the Giraud. What was that experience like? Well, there's only a couple of times we shared a bedroom, and that was one of them. And uh, I, I found out that he had some different showering habits. So he, he likes a very long shower. Um, but then we stayed together in uh, one of the worst hotels I've ever been in, in um, Paris, called the Absolute Hotel. And with these two beds, which were literally just falling apart. And I think that fucked both of our backs up. But yeah, so it was quite close proximity, our first wine trips. You know, we were in these twin rooms. Um, but I, I think, you know, on a wine trip, you're driving a lot, you're between appointments, you're meeting people for the first time, you're having to take on an incredible amount of information about a lot of different cuvées a lot of the time, process that. So you're cramming in all these these amazing visits and then you're getting out for the evening and you're going to, you know, simple restaurants, but with good wine lists. And when you're in France, as you know, it's the best place to drink burgundy or rhones or whatever at good prices because restaurants will get them on allocation from the producers and they won't be able to do silly markups because the producers won't give them any more so we had some incredible experiences when we first started out um jean-paul jeunet was a two-star restaurant in arbois that we went to on that trip where we shared the bedroom and i remember we drank a massini off the list for 300 euros from freddie mounier in 07 which again one of those seminal moments for us at the time it had really old vintages of jacques pouffinet you know 96 the cote de jura for probably 70 euros or whatever but as we've seen in the 10 years some of these wines have become almost unobtainable that massini today would be two and a half thousand pounds and that's not because of what Freddie Mooney is doing. It's just because of what the market's doing. And it's the challenge of the of the wine industry or wine culture is that not everyone can taste these wines anymore. And that uh, Girard trip is probably when Mark had that visit to Tissot that seemed to really hit him, got him going. If we're talking about visits or great visits in the Jura, I'd say Stefan Tissot is probably one of the, the most brilliant ambassadors for that region or any region we did a masterclass with van joan with him the last time we saw him and he took the whole morning out and you know poured his full range over multiple different vintages and talked about van joan because he's one of the only people i think who do different single vineyard van jones which is is something that i love i mean i i think it's one of those wines that is just unique it's like I love Condrieu as well, which couldn't be more different to Van Joan, but I love it because it is itself, or I, I like white Hermitage because, I mean, a lot of people don't like those white Rhone wines because they're they're rich, they go against the zeitgeist for kind of felt high acid wines. So, yeah, anyone who can go and see Stefan Tiso as a visit should do so because he's, he's a passionate vigneron who is just about opening people's eyes to this wonderful wine that he makes or different wines that he makes. So some other places you've been, you know, you traveled to Rioja, for example, and you're yeah. pretty familiar with those wines as well. Yeah, yeah. Lopez Heredia was amazing. Telmo Rodriguez as well. Great winemaker. I mean, going into Lopez de Heredia and going down to the basement They've got a room at the bottom where they've got vintages stretching back to like 1850 or something. And it's got so many cobwebs and spiders and mold growing all over that place. That was a really influential place to go. And uh, 
it's the same story as other parts of Spain that people are finding lost vineyards. Telmo Rodriguez took over Las Pietas vineyards, which he said were the old Grand Cru's, trying to uh, resurrect history from like two, three hundred years ago, beyond even the kind of Lopez de Heredia history. So fascinating time in Spain. Love going to Spain. You know, Spain is, I think, the most exciting wine country of the last 10 years in terms of its development i mean commando g i was just writing about their entry-level wine and of course their rare single vineyard cuvées go for a lot of money now but for less than 30 pounds you can still buy their entry level that gives you a real taste of the magic suerte del marquez in tenerife who we're working with as well you know the kind of smokiness of those wines they taste like they're grown on volcanic rock and they have an incredible kind of visceral kind of energy to them. You know, the the new producers making unfortified uh, sherry, like uh, Willie Perez and, uh, you know, Cotta 45, fantastic wines. So, yeah, wherever you look in Spain, it's, it seems to have reinvented itself from making oaky, turbocharged, high-alcohol headache juice into making these more finessed styles. And... They've all been looking to Burgundy and places like that to see how to do that. A region that impacted you, that you were pleasantly surprised by, that maybe was a learning experience for you, was Tuscany. Yeah. Uh, when we went to see Soldera, unfortunately, he was in hospital and we had arranged to, to see him. And he was obviously, he came out of hospital and a few weeks later he died. But that was a profound meeting with Monica, his daughter, to see the lengths that he went to, how uncompromising he was to make his wines. The fact that, you know, he wouldn't just get rid of like the big berries, he'd get rid of the really small ones, which other estates would never do, because as we know, that's where a lot of the flavor is. But he wanted a uniformity. And when you taste the wines, the, the sensuality of the wines and the, the generosity of the wines, the kind of ethereality of them were just head of shoulders above so many others. You could see the relationship between what he was doing, his process and the finished wine. So that was a, an amazing visit. A few months later, or maybe a couple of years later, we went to Chianti. And I, I knew a bit about Chianti, but it was maybe the commercial stuff. And I was not particularly into it. Um, but one thing I do love doing more and more is not knowing that much about a certain wine area and then just go, right, fuck it, we'll go there. And then doing your research as you go. Like recently, I've been in Valais in Switzerland. I didn't really know much about those wines because they're not exported very much. Savoie. So you go, you just talk to people and you, you know, rather than going with a preconceived idea of what the story is, is, is going and, and trying to talk to people, get their viewpoint, but then to let it percolate through your brain for a few weeks and seep into your subconscious and to retaste the wines and then think, well, what is, what is the story of this place or what is one particular facet of it? Because what we don't want to do is be an encyclopedic objective view on a certain area. It's to have a story that is, that is going to be insightful to readers. That is, why does this place matter or, or not? But Chianti was, uh, I think, one of the most impressive visits in terms of how cheap the wines currently are to uh, how good the best producers are. Like uh, Tenuta di Carlione, you know, those wines, Uno, for, for I don't know how much it is now, maybe £60. It's, it's an incredible wine. 
that's a wine if you wanted something of that level in Burgundy, you'd be paying five hundred pounds for, you know, or maybe three hundred. But it's going somewhere and leaving your preconceptions behind can be such a an amazing thing. In a way you did that with Bordeaux too, because you know, it's so out of fashion now. And yeah. you went and you kind of did a deep dive and not everyone would do that right now, honestly, in media. No, I mean Bordeaux we sell a lot of in the restaurants, but we sell a lot of mature Bordeaux. It's incredible value that, you know, you can pick up some of the best wines in the region for for comparatively not so much money when you compare it to Burgundy again. Um, so there's value there. But uh, I still really don't get where kind of Empremeur is at with, with Bordeaux because the prices are just as expensive as some of the old vintages. So, for example, in the piece, I think I quote Cos d'Estanel, you can buy 2001, a good but underrated vintage of Cos d'Estanel, for £200 less than you can buy the 2021 Empremeur, which needs 20 or 30 years in the bottle and the cellar to, to be interesting. Which I don't understand how that business model is, is even workable. That's got some recorrecting to do. But I loved going to Bordeaux. I loved, you know, I got to go to Cheval Blanc and Aubryon, two of my favourite chateaux. And then you know, Le Carme Aubryon, which I write about at the end of the piece, this chateau that's using Cabernet Franc predominantly, using whole clusters, which is kind of unheard of in Bordeaux, certainly since Distemmers came in all that time ago, and coming up with these beautiful ethereal elegant wines that can be drunk fairly early in their life like we've been selling the 2017 in the restaurants i think it tastes absolutely amazing now and i don't know many other really good estates there whose wines you can drink that early and get that kind of experience from one of the countries or bigger wine regions that you guys cover in your book that i think a lot of writers whose first languages English do not cover is Greece. And Mark seems particularly keyed up on Greek wine and Santorini wine in particular. Mark is a master of wine and he wrote his dissertation for the master of wine on Santorini Assertico and did a lot of research about it. But he's a big Grecophile. I think he secretly must have been Greek in another life. And, you know, we, we work with some fantastic producers Dalamara, uh, Zinamavro, we import uh, from Nosa, which are fantastic. Uh, Ekonumu, whose wines are just idiosyncratic. You know, the last release we had in Antigone, 2004, um, and he's aged the wine himself in all sorts of different vessels and has only just released it now, like 18 years later. I mean, those kind of wines, that's what we love. We love characters. And we love really individual wines that are of someone and of a place as well. Because as much as terroir matters and the expressing the place, the person matters and their personality is often in the wine as well. I see you guys doing that quite a bit. That's a continuing theme, looking for the characters. And I, the way I would sum it up is that during the Industrial Revolution with all the trains coming through and the automobiles hitting the road and uh, you know coal factories happening, that's also in the arts. That's the flourishing of the Impressionists and the Post-Impressionists. That's you know people going out of the countryside. They're painting water lilies. And you know behind them is a steaming locomotive in real life, right? Yeah. And I feel like uh, what you guys do often is the reality of the wine world is that there's a lot of industrial plonk. 
that's just the reality percentage wise of what the wine world is that there's a lot of made in huge quantity junk that's designed for supermarkets yeah and you guys are looking the other direction you're looking for individual soulful characters and leaving the industrial part out of the frame yeah i mean that's that's absolutely right i mean we're not against supermarket wine for the sake of being against supermarket wine but definitely before knowing anything at all about wine you know, when you watch those kind of TV personalities talk about a, you know, Cabernet Sauvignon from, you know, Australia, and they would get, you know, they describe how they got kind of blackberries, and they've got, you know, cigar smoke, and they've got all these other things, and the descriptors got more and more outlandish. I would try some of the wines, and I think it just smells of kind of wine. It just has a very generic, you know, there's no edges there's zero personality and I would be very disillusioned. And I think there's a lot of people who look at wine as quite pretentious nonsense because of that, because of this describing commercial industrial wine as having a personality when it really doesn't. And the other side of that is, you know, are you a snob? You know, not everyone can spend a hundred pounds on a bottle of wine or 20 pounds or 15 pounds or whatever your metric is. But it's it's not about that. It's you know I, I think about a lot of commercial wine is like ready meals, and it will sustain you. Yes, it has got chicken in it. Yes, it has got rice in it. But it's it if you buy some chicken and you cook the chicken and you have the rice and you cook that and you have a proper recipe, it doesn't have to be outlandish. It can be very simple. But it's going to taste of something. It's going to be comforting. It's going to be nourishing. It's not like some processed stuff that is just generic. And I I think that that's that's our mission in terms of part of the mission for Noble Rot is to give people wines that are made by actual families and people in a place that is representative of something different that it might not always be consistent. And I know that when you're a supermarket buyer, you have to have consistency. That's something that if you're scaling up, they need to have, and they also need to have it at the cheapest price. So then you've got the pressure on the on the farmer to, you know, cut corners with you know fertilizers and all that stuff. But yes, it does supply people with cheap wine, but it fucks the planet up, and it's actually not that pleasurable. So maybe drinking something else would be better for you. So um, doing something different, you know, sticking to your guns. It's when you find these winemakers, Jean-Marie Guffins, for example, uh, who I've met a few times and is always a bit of an inspiration. I mean, he's great from a journalistic point of view because he's always got so many great quotes and he's not afraid to say something and take a pot shot or whoever else. But, I mean, if he didn't do that, that would be a big surprise, actually. Yeah. It'd be like, what's going on, man? Are you feeling sick? You didn't take any pot shots today. Exactly. But inspirational in that would go to an area known for the wine being made at the local co-op and no one really dreaming about anything else and just made these wines that then would surpass lofty names from Polini von Roche in blind tastings. So, I mean, going back to being an underdog... I love that about Guffins. That's part of his story. I'm the underdog and I've taken on people that are supposed to be much better than I am and I've and I've I've done something good and maybe that that ethos is ingrained a little bit in what we do as well that we weren't part of the wine industry and there's a part of the wine industry which is stuck very much in the past and 
it was an opportunity that we could take to do something different. That's the part where I actually see your work is more similar to someone like Robert Parker than maybe you would think of it as, because he was also a huge underdog guy. He was also a huge outsider to the wine trade guy. And he was also a huge fan of Goofins who gave him huge scores and yeah. thought, you know, he was a hero incarnate and loved the fact that he was a guy who wasn't part of the, the yes man factory. And I loved that he was an individualist and looking over the broad sweep of things for me what i see in in media is that the theme of being an outsider in the wine world comes up again and again but is often reinvented to the age and i think you're yeah. the current manifestation of it it's kind of like doctor who a little bit when robert parker you know who was revolutionary at that time came out he was standing up for the consumer as he said and he was saying that he's completely impartial which i, I don't know if i 100 percent agree with anyone can be 100 percent impartial maybe he was when he started out but he was definitely put himself up as the outsider and i and he changed a lot he made it so much more accessible wine so i've got a lot of respect for parker what i don't have so much time for is that homogenization of taste and people would then make wine to fit his palate and that would be to the loss of expressing something individual about the place but yes i i, I do agree that there are some similarities there although you know he was like so influential and to have one person who is influential in a in wine or music or film i think it's kind of unthinkable now you're a father and you're someone who has kind of gone against the conventional wisdom a couple times to some success, right? And you, I think, are drawn to people who are like that. You, you like to profile people like that. You like to hang out with people like that. Yeah. But when it comes to giving advice to younger people who are entering this world about how they might conduct their own business, life, work, what would you tell them as important? from a paternalistic viewpoint not just the viewpoint of you know these people but you really care about these people yeah what are you going to tell them i would say to, to try and find something that you really enjoy doing that you can find meaning and purpose with that gets you out of bed in the morning and to just get involved with it i mean you can start off and it can be hard because you might not earn money from it at, at first but you start with something small and you, you do small steps and one thing leads to another i mean with writing, as I've said, one thing leads to another and you've got to get out there and kind of start before you're ready with a certain some projects and put yourself in a position where you can meet other people. So, you know, this generation coming through, they're going to, it's going to be tough. I mean, it always is tough, but as we know, there's a lot of changes that are going to happen with technology. So you've got to be kind of clever about what the jobs will be in the future, what skills as a human being can you offer to others but yeah try and find something that really gives meaning to your life and i've managed to do that with noble rot and you know it's writing about wine which to some people could sound frivolous and i sometimes think well it's, it's, it's wine but this you know wine's such a deep subject so it keeps me engaged and you know i keep coming back to this kind of mission statement for noble rot which is to entertain other people and to make them feel special and and that's worthwhile in itself and if you know my kids they might want to be doing something more creative something more art based and if that's what 
you find meaning in, you should do it and you should just get out there and get involved. Dan Keeling has found a meaning for his own life by searching after the meaning of wine. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you, Livy. Dan Keeling, the co-founder, co-owner of Noble Rot Magazine, the Noble Rot restaurants in London, England, Keeling, Andrew, and Co., as well as Shrine to the Vine, the retail shop in London. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening. I listened to several interviews with Dan Keeling while preparing questions for our own conversation, and a couple that stood out for me were episode 27 of the Mag Culture podcast and a book larder YouTube episode with Dan and Mark. Check those out if you'd like to hear more. So with the Blue Room EP, we started off with a guy called Chris Allison, and Chris Allison had worked with the Beta Band, and the Beta Band at that time felt like they could have exploded and been that generation's stone roses but they kind of unfortunately didn't work out for them and there was lots of reasons for that but he was the guy that produced the three eps from the beat band and i was a massive fan of that so thought he could be a good choice for coldplay but on the first day of pre-production he was over one side of the studio chris martin was over the other shouting each other and it was just never gonna work so then it was, you know, you're out, you're looking for other producers and you're referencing other records that you like. And there was, there's a guy called Ken Nelson who produced Parachutes, um, who'd done a band called Gomez at the time. And Ken was very unassuming, uh, Liverpudlian, really, really laid back. I don't think Chris Allison was necessarily laid back and that might have been why he didn't quite connect with Chris Martin. And... Ken did a fantastic job of very simply recording the band without overproducing it, which I think, you know, is a big pitfall of a lot of major label music and didn't polish it too much, but really bore out the, the purity and the naivety, which I think makes that album a really classic album. The cover was at the last minute came together. The cover it could have been was awful. I would say it looked like a bit like a tampon advert. It was so dreary or, you know, something made by some big mass market brand for cosmetics. Um, I think it might have featured a dove or something like that. I'm not sure, but I just remember hating it and thinking it had no relationship with the band. And with big labels, you would have a marketing department and some marketing people are very good and really understand bands or the band they're working with and others, it can be a bit tenuous. And at that time, we had pretty much the album ready to go. And 
I think Chris had a globe that he had on top of his piano when he was playing live shows. And this was before everyone had a phone, really. I think it must have been 99. And we had those disposable cameras that everyone used to have when there was a party that you'd get a kind of petrol station or something like that. And I think he took a picture of the spinning globe and it, that was the, the shot and then it became the cover. I think uh, I was so relieved because it might not be the best cover ever, but it's, it is what it is and you can read into it. That it has a simplicity and it's stylish enough to pull it off because... I mean, it'd be interesting, and this is all hypothetical, but if you have a, a classic album, so you take Paul Simon Graceland, but you give it a bad cover, would it still be as resonant? It probably would be, because it's a brilliant bit of music, but classic albums need a good cover, and thank God that that happened at the last minute. 